combination of gearheads. John the instigator, Derek the conservative, Will the builder, Sean the racer, and maybe a guest invite you to listen while we sit down, have a drink, and discuss cars. Time now for the ride. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of No Driving Gloves. Obviously, this is not John talking, uh, but this is Derek. And uh, we have an exciting interview tonight. It's uh, just John and myself for the hosts. uh, Hey, everybody. All through this, leading you all through this uh, wonderful interview. And uh, it appears Will and Sean are just too busy with real work or something. They're not going to join us. But uh, John, how how have you been doing this week? Uh, Kind of a busy little beaver. Uh, Doing a little bit of work on no driving gloves and uh, if you've listened to the um, new outro to the show, you'll hear J. Lewis production. Um, actually, because of COVID and what happened, it affected my automotive co- uh, consulting business. And we're doing, I'm, I've got a lot of requests and a couple of interesting clients. And I'm doing uh, podcast production a lot now, a little bit. So uh, it's been kind of looking at that. And we're, I'm developing a second podcast that's coming out. So nothing car-wise, everything podcast-wise, which for our listeners benefits you because you'll get a better podcast, including the potential. We're playing with some of the background video stuff and probably going to move the videos back to YouTube. And I'm hoping to begin streaming the show in the next couple. You'll be able to sit down during our recording times, which do vary, but we'll let you know on social media and be able to watch us on the website the website, Facebook, and you. That's kind of what I've been doing, Derek. Just fun background technical work. With you've been doing anything exciting? No, but the the big news out of that is my webcam broke, so we're not going to be able to have my video. It just it sucks. But oh well. <laughs> now, uh, basically, just you know, work at the museum as normal and uh, playing in the uh, playing in the garage with cars. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. I guess the John is that I do have uh, everything moving forward. Finally, everything went through to build a new barn here at the house. So I will be getting the pole barn up finally so I can move out of essentially two and a half car garage situation I have to a uh, 30 by 45 uh, pole barn. So that's the exciting news. And now it's just waiting for the construction uh, crew to get here and actually build it. Should we start a thread? Uh, on the, like say Facebook and take bets over under or something on how long it takes you to fill that up. Because, um, you know, like I've always said with the Barber Museum, 150,000 square feet, we fill it up, we build a 20,000 square foot building and it seems the next day it's full. Will's got what, 18 buildings, they're all full. Um, our guest just said something about having the same problem that you get these buildings. How, how long is it going to take you to fill yours up, Derek? Well, I, I think it's already full and it isn't built, so uh, that's that's a problem. But that is a great segue into our our guest this evening and uh, uh, a good friend of mine for many years now. Uh, tonight, joining us, we have Myron Vernis. Uh, Myron, welcome to No Driving Gloves. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. Uh, possibly some of our listeners have. Uh, heard Myron's name or uh, maybe read about Myron or watched some videos uh, with Myron. 
But Byron is uh, known uh, on many websites, many car collecting websites. Uh, I know Jalopnik is one of them. Uh, but as, as some people call him the most eccentric car collector in the world, uh, one of the you know, most eccentric car collections in the world, uh, ranging everything from the Hoffman X8 uh, uh, to a Mazda Cosmo. Oh, geez. Uh, Gabriel, the, uh, 1909, if I remember right, Myron? Uh, 1912. 1912. Uh, I predated it. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, 1912 Gabriel, built in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, uh, many, many other cars. I don't even, Myron, what, what is the uh, total number of cars that you do own now? You know, that's <laughs> it's a better question for my daughter. She has a better handle on it, but uh, <laughs> since my wife's not in the room, you know, it's, uh, I'd say it's between 70 and 80 at this point. And you really... And I mean, you you have that title across many uh, of the car websites that are out there as as the most eccentric car collector, uh, you know, or having one of the most eccentric car collections there are. And I, obviously, I've seen some of it. And uh, as I say, you you have some fantastic cars, uh, actually. You know, and I'll let you talk about some of them because it's phenomenal. And the cars you are able to track down and find and collect are, are sometimes really, I mean, incredible, one-of-a-kind, extremely, with, with extreme historic significance. Um, so, you know, if you want to just kind of talk about some of the cars in your collection, and, and really, the, I'd love to hear, and I think the listeners would, kind of your backstory, like what got you into the, the car collecting world, and what your passion is in these various centric automobiles that you collect. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know that people use the word eccentric. I don't know if I really love it. I don't. I don't see my uh, my collection as being eccentric. It's diverse, um, but I've seen other collections which I would call more more eccentric than mine. But hey, as long as you're having fun, that that's all that matters. I buy cars that I like, and I like uh, the stories behind the cars primarily. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a mechanic. Uh, I've never been in the car business. I've just always been passionate about cars. My my dad hated cars. Uh, my mom never learned to drive. But my folks told me that we, we lived in Greece until I was about five years old. And they said I would just sit on the balcony at like three and four and just kind of watch the cars go by, which I guess made life easy for my mom. She knew where I was going to be and didn't, didn't have any issues. But, uh, you know, I really don't know where... Uh, where the bug came from, but it, it it's a bad one, and uh, my dad couldn't understand it either. <laughs> so, what was the first? Well, I guess maybe this is a good quote. What was the first car you owned and drove? But also, what was the first car you bought as essentially what you would consider your kind of first car of the collection, or your first car you picked up more than just as a, a daily driver? What basically? What are you know? What was your first car, and what was your taproot car? And all? Yeah, yeah. What, what uh, launched you? <laughs> well, yeah, the first car, the first car I ever had was uh, my uncle who lived in New York. Uh, I, I live in Akron, Ohio. My uncle who lived in New York when I was about seventeen years old. Was driving through town, and he had this is in the early seventies. He had a nineteen sixty nine Plymouth Sport Fury, which was a pretty cool car, and it just happened to blow its engine up about an hour outside of town. So we had it towed to to our place, and uh, he said, hey, it's time for another car, so he just gave it to me. Um, and my dad said he would pay for a replacement engine to go into it. It was a very cool, really good-looking two-door hardtop, and it had a 
83 four barrel. Of course, my dad had it replaced with a 318 two barrel. But, uh, you know, when you're 17 years old, a car is a car. So that was that was my first car. But the first car I ever bought was about a year and a half later. Um, I wouldn't buy a car till uh, I, I could afford a nice one. And uh, it was uh, a 1963 Porsche 356B coupe, um, which I still have 46 years later. And, and it, that, that kind of started uh, a real passion for 356s. They were cheap back then. They were plentiful. And uh, boy, I think over the years, I've had over 100 of them. Wow. That's a significant uh, portion of the 356 production run. Uh, yeah, you well, just... you know, when, when you're buying speedsters for, you know, $1,500, $2,000, you know, uh, I bought my B Coupe for 1500 bucks, and it had a fresh paint job and a freshly rebuilt engine. That's kind of where the market was. And so, you know, kind of funny. I, 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 will, I think because back when I was, I was a teenager in the late 80s, and 914s were absolutely worthless, and I know you have a 914. An oddball one, but you have one. Uh, and, you know, my dad wouldn't let me get them because they were rust buckets, blah, blah, blah. And now they're kind of a desirable car, kind of like the 356 was in your day. And I think to the people, the up and coming generation, I think the 924 is probably that car for them. It's just neat. It's kind of neat that unlike Ferraris, you know, nobody's, nothing's ever going to depreciate down to a $3,000 Ferrari again, or even the equivalent. Porsche always seems to have a model that is that bottom barrel, and it's going to be the 924, and then I think the next one, if it's not already here, is the Boxster. You pick those up cheap, and I think that'll end up, you know, one thing we like on No Driving Gloves is to figure out how to get new people in a car hobby. You know, you said the 356 did it for you, and I'm sure some of our younger, our youngest listeners will p- end up picking up a Boxster or 924 or something like that for their initial car, and hopefully that'll launch them. I'm not a huge, huge Porsche fan, but I think there's a part of my heart that really likes the hobby. Yeah, I think I think the 924s, the good ones, have actually started picking up a little bit. I think the real entry level Porsche right now is the 944. They're plentiful, they're cheap, um, kind of like 356s were, you know, way back when. There's good parts support for them, and they're really, really good cars. So um, I, I think there's a real opportunity there for someone who wants to get into the hobby to get a really cool car. Now, I touched on your 914. You have a one of two 914, do you not? Right, yeah. It was uh, a pickup truck built by Troutman Barnes in California in the early 70s. Uh, they, uh, I mean, they were a famous coach builder. They built the scare of race cars and other cool stuff. And uh, back in the early 70s, uh, they had the idea that they were going to build the little 914 pickup truck to use as their shop vehicle. So they, uh, they went to Aussie Brothers Wrecking Yard. And, uh, oh, gosh, it was in Anaheim. Uh, it was a port, strictly Porsche wrecking yard. Uh, t- and they had a, a wreck 914.6. They went in, he bought it. Uh, Dave Aussie, uh, one of the Aussie brothers, asked them what they were going to do with it. They said they were going to turn it into a shop truck. And at that point, Dave said, hey, can you build one for me at the same time? So uh, he said, yeah. So mine is the Aussie Brothers 914, which is a four-cylinder. The other pickup truck was a six-cylinder that uh, Troutman Barnes used. And that is currently owned by uh, Kevin Jeanette at Gunner Racing in Florida. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is looking at the pickup or your pickup, it kind of has the little fender flares in the back. And I was wondering if it was a six or if it was a, a four, but obviously they built one of each. I think having the flares gave you no wheel wells and the, what do I want to say, floor, uh, explorer sport track size bed. It's not exactly 
a four by eight pickup bed, but it it's a neat thing to have. And I think you know there's a kind of a hot market right now with uh, is it Smith Designs that's building the little uh, pickup truck conversions oh, yeah. for about eighteen different cars. Yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. Those, those uh, I've seen I've seen pictures of them. They're pretty neat units. I talked to him way early in his production when he was building uh, the the Jetta pickup was just coming out, and I just I kind of like the Beetle that he's got, and I've got an idea on a Beetle and. I want to reach out and talk to him about it and like to get him on the show and maybe put him on the spot. Um, I've just got an idea about doing one of his Beetle pickups in a way I haven't. That's just me. Yeah, you know, those, those first generation new Beetles right now are, I think, also a pretty good uh, buying opportunity for an enthusiast. There, there are plenty of them out there. They're, I think, at the bottom of their cycle. Uh, we had one, our, our, our girls had one through high school and college, and uh, they're cool little cars. Yeah, I don't think you can get much cheaper. I, you know, I've seen a lot of some of the 2000, 2002s and that three and $500 price point need a ton of work, probably have a bad motor, but uh, I think they're, you know, they're a great start. And I've got a buddy up, in, he used to live close to me, but now he's up in Northern Indiana that uh, that's his hobby. He He works in a repair shop, but He's always building and doing engine swaps, and he he understands the ECUs and writes his own software and codes for them. So it's it's a market, and they're they're you know that's what that's what's got my ideas. My donor vehicle is a little bit more expensive on the VW, but they're still three you know less than three grand. I mean, for three grand or for six grand, I could have the kit, I could have the car, and then the rest is the assembly cost. I'll throw it back to you, Derek. Yeah, well, yeah, and Myron, I mean, has had some incredible, uh, you know, Porsches in the collection. Uh, I, you did, did you sell the tractor, Myron, or do you still have the Porsche? Tra- Which Porsche tractor? There. Oh <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think I think uh, we've had over thirty of them. Um, right now, I think we're down to three or four, plus a couple of uh, Japanese knockoffs of Porsche tractors. <laughs> Okay, well, there, that that explains kind of you know uh, when when you have to ask which one there's you know not many people that can can usually say that. But. Yeah, well, you know the, uh, the the one I kept the, the really kind of the the stellar one I have is so one of the early green ones when uh, Porsche Diesel and Allgaier were just kind of switching over. So um, it, it's it was a factory built green one which John Deere got a little upset about. That's why ninety nine point nine percent. And the Porsche tractors you'll see today are, are red with yellow wheels. It's uh, kind of like the whole 55 port when Porsche decided they were going to sell the 356 as the Continental and Ford Motor Company wasn't happy with that. Uh, same deal with uh, the green tractors and Porsche diesel. Fantastic. And uh, one of the other things kind of that I find interesting about you know your, let's call it collecting initiative or your collecting passion, you're a big fan of Brooke Stevens. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan at Brooks Stevens. I'm I'm a big fan of industrial designers as automotive designers. Um, I think they look at things a little differently. I'm a big fan of automotive designers as automotive designers too, uh, primarily because I don't have have an artistic bone in my body. Uh, But uh, Brooks Stevens was really kind of I you know I kind of see him. My my favorite Italian designer is Pietro Frua, and I kind of see those two as. Uh, being similar because they they did things regardless of convention, and as a result, they they really hit a lot of grand slams. I you know they also struck out a fair amount too, but uh, I I love that they did it their way. Yeah, and that's I think that's one of the cool things about what you know what you're talking about with those cars and what Brooke Stevens did. 
uh, you know, I was at Amelia this year, and of course they had the Scimitar collection uh, right. brought together, all all three of those together, and, and um, I actually had the good fortune to, to get the chance to drive one, but the attention that the cars that he designed, you know, bring when those cars are out, maybe you can tell us a few of the, the cars that you have that were designed by him. Um, but they capture the attention of the car world and, and the non-car world because of that kind of unconventional design that they, that, you know, he worked. In. Yeah. You know, a, a few of the conventional, more conventional cars of his that I have are, uh, I have a, a Studebaker Wagoneer, uh, a GT Hawk, which, you know, those are kind of legendary because he basically redid the Studebaker line when they didn't have a, a, a penny to do anything with. I, th- I think they said he redid the whole line for what Chrysler would have spent on redesigning a Plymouth door handle or something. It was uh, was pretty amazing. Um, I have a, a Jeepster, a Willis Jeepster, uh, the last American production uh, Phaeton. Um, I was driving my 35 Ford Phaeton day too, which was kind of fun. But uh, uh, that and, uh, oh, I have uh, a Series 1 Excalibur. And people say, gosh, you got an Excalibur. Oh, it's gross. But, you know, the, the Series 1 cars, the first 97 cars were amazing sports cars. You know, he was a, he was a, a sports car racer. Uh, what a lot of people don't know about Brooks Stevens was he was an amazing historian in his collection at the time though maybe not as big as a lot of other collections, was really of the highest caliber. So he had some of, some of the greatest stuff, that you see, some greatest cars you see coming up at auction at events around the country over the last 10 years it came out of the Brooks Stevens collection from back then. So uh, my Series 1 X caliber is just an absolute wonderful car to drive. It's, uh, it's got 16,000 original miles. It's all original. In fact, we just took the original 1966 vintage uh, Goodyear poly cushions off and replaced them with some modern radials a few weeks ago. Uh, but uh, 327, 350, four-speed transmission, front disc brakes. In 66, when it was built, it was it was quicker zero to 60 and in the quarter mile than a small block Corvette or uh, or Cobra. Um, now, being that it was on a Studebaker chassis means you probably didn't want to do a whole lot of cornering with it. But uh, they were amazingly quick cars. And, you know, eventually they morphed into, you know, the neoclassic stereotype that PVX held. And uh, I, I guess the, the most unique Brooks Stevens car I have is a car called the Paxton Phoenix, a one-off car uh, built by, uh, built, uh, designed by him for uh, Robert Paxton McCulloch when uh, McCulloch uh, had a dream in the early 50s of bringing back steam-powered automobiles and hired Abner Doble to do a steam engine for him. Uh, cover car of the April 57 issue of uh, Road & Track magazine. And the coolest thing about it is it's, it's an all-original car. It's uh, got about 800 original miles, still on its original tires, uh, original paint, original interior. I think the cool thing about all of that is you know, when you start diving into that, history of those cars and you know so many people recognize the big names of you know harley earl bill mitchell you know the various designers that that got the notoriety but then you have somebody like brooke stevens that you know you listed off a couple couple cars there that you own that i mean pretty much everybody knows of willis jeepster this unknown man had his kind of hand in the design of it but then he goes off and works with someone, you know, an automotive pioneer like Abner Doble uh, and the Doble steam car 
to try to bring the steam car back um, is just it, it's it's an incredible connection to automotive history within these cars that you have in your collection and um, you know the the stories that you're able to tell with them and I you know it's just I think that's one of the fascinating things about the cars you you do collect and yet kind of your passion around the auto. Yeah, actually the Paxton was the reason Stevens did uh, the restyle on the on the Studebaker line in the early 60s when uh, Stevens was doing the uh, Paxton for McCulloch in the early 50s. A guy named Sherwood Egbert was a vice president, young vice president of uh, McCulloch Industries Paxton uh, Superchargers. And he later in the early 60s went on to become president of Studebaker, trying to save the company. And then he remembered 10 years before uh, the great working relationship we had, he had with Brooke Stevens and then brought him in. And uh, that, that was kind of the trigger for Stevens doing the work on the, on the Hawks and the Larks in the early 60s. Oh, I was going to say I was going to switch gears a little bit off the, um, you know, the kind of the, you know, one-off cars you have that were, you know, maybe attempts at production cars and, you know, just to kind of show the, the breadth and, you know, cross cultural uh, vehicles you have. You're also a a collector and um, someone who is fascinated by hot rod culture and, I know you've got some pretty significant hot rods in your collection, a great T-Bucket Roadster, and um, a a fairly well-known hot rod cover car that you just recently picked up that has ties to Ohio hot rod shops. Yeah, um, I grew up in Akron, and our neighbors that were into cars, for the most part, were, you know, hot rodders and custom car guys. Never really interested me that much. Uh, until again, I learned more of the history, and it's a kind of a unique American part of part of uh, American automotive history. And I really I didn't buy my first hot rod, and I don't consider my collection as far as hot rods and custom cars being that great. But the cars I have, I'm very happy. Um, I didn't buy my first hot rod till I was 59 years old, and it's it's a pretty cool car. It's a 27 T Roadster uh, that was built by a couple of young guys in California in the late 40s. Ran Bonneville 51 52. 2017 Roadster on a ZA frame uh, with a 46 Merck flathead, triple Strombergs. And the great thing about it was it stayed with one of the guys until he passed away less than 10 years ago. And it was, unlike most hot rods, it pretty much was unmolested in that whole time. So the only thing that had, had to be done is obviously go back, refresh all the mechanicals, and paint it back to its original color. But uh, the way it looks today is exactly like it looked with the pictures we have at Bonneville in 52 and the the chrome other than the exhaust is all the original chrome that you saw there. I have the tow bar they used to pull it from LA out to the salt flats. So that was my first hot rod. And uh, over the last few years, I've gotten into the whole custom car culture and uh, uh, George Barris was a friend. You know, I hate to, I hate to say to Derek, but Derek knows now I, you know, I went 64 years without ever having owned a Corvette. And uh, about six months ago, I, I bought my first Corvette, which is a 58 Corvette, but it happened to be a full Barris Custom 58 Corvette. Uh, uh, may not be universally appreciated, but it, 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 it ticks two things off the box, right? A Barris car and, and, and owning a Corvette. And uh, more recently, I was able to acquire a car that I'd been after for probably 15 years. Uh, a car built in California again. By Valley Custom Shop, and Valley was famous for sectioning and uh, 
when George Barris eulogized Neil Emery, who was one of the two partners in, uh, in Valley Custom Shop, when he passed away, he acknowledged him as being the true king of customs, which is, you know, those of you who know uh, Barris, he was the great guy, but he had, a, he had a good ego. But for him to say that about Neil Emery, he meant it. So I, it was a car called the Polynesian. It's a car called the Polynesian, the 1950 Olds Holiday 88 Coupe uh, that was uh, customized in 1953 by Valley Custom Shop uh, for a gentleman who lives here in Ohio who was stationed out in California. And uh, they finished it. It was a nine-month project, and uh, it immediately became a sensation in the custom car world. He, he drove it from L.A. to Michigan for the first Autorama a week after the car was done and won, won Best of Show with it. And uh, then it was Hot Rod Custom, uh, Hot Rod Cover Car. Uh, I think it was different, eight different uh, magazine covers, so. Pretty famous car, well known as really one of the top customs from the Golden. You said something in there that I guess I never thought uh, because, you know, Derek's introduced you and talked about you being, you know, collecting unusual cars and that. But you said that you had been pursuing this car. You've been wanting this car for 15 years. So is your collection, I kind of figured your car collection was a little bit random. Hey, this unusual cars out there, I'm going to grab it. But is your collection actually a little bit more carefully curated and you have certain goals and certain spots that you want to fill in the collection? Granted, there's still probably some of your desires in there, but are you to that level of collecting that, you know, the, the oddball stuff's out and now you're focusing a little bit more? No, no, I, I am at no <laughs> level of collecting. <laughs> you know, you know for, for 45 years now, I pretty much buy what I like. And, uh, you know, I, I, the Polynesian, I wasn't trying to fill a hole. It was a car that I fell in love with. I've known forever, belonged to a friend forever. The car, even though it was built in California, has always lived in Northern Ohio. So that was just kind of on the bucket list. So, um, it, when I, I went on a binge a few years ago, buying JDM cars, classic JDM cars, uh, I, I guess that was as close to curating as I ever came kind of picked out about a dozen cars that you just don't see in the United States that made every effort to bring over from Japan was successful most for most of it. And that kind of turned into uh, a book. Uh, we just finished up a friend and I are, are co-authoring a book on Japanese cars, cool Japanese cars. Um, and it became work. So I really don't want to get into the curating thing because it turned into, you know, four, four years worth of hard work which I think is going to be a fantastic book when it's done. You know, it's, it's become uh, an overwhelming project. When, uh, it'll end up being four volumes of about 1,000 pages when we release it uh, around the first of the year. That sounds interesting. And you know, we've, we've got a couple of people that have been on the show that are very big JDM guys. And I, I've, over the years, become a disbeliever in that saying, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. But do what you love and you'll have nothing to love in your life. And that's why I'm, do why I'm doing podcasting now and not working on cars for a living because finally cars are becoming fun again. I know I went out and actually did some work on a car the other day and it was enjoyable and it didn't feel like, oh boy, I'm working. So yeah, it is just one of those. So, you know, people ask me all the time, but you have such a love for cars. Why aren't you in the car business? And uh, I said, you know, I don't want the passion to go away. I, uh, I was in the country club business. I managed country clubs for, for a living, and uh, I never played golf. <laughs> it, was a, it was a business. 
department. Well, you know, John, I think I picked up on the uh, the same thing there. Actually, I picked up on a couple things along the way. Uh, number one, you know, Myron mentioning it took you know fifteen years to to get the Polynesian. And you know, one of the things we always talk about on the podcast is is getting new generations involved. And and sometimes we throw out these you know ideas of how to get involved. And, you know, the the collectors we talk to, some of the things they say, we try to reflect on. And I think that's one of them, which is, you know, sometimes the car you're looking for and the car you're trying to collect, it might take a while to get it. Don't feel like you have to rush to get that car and get it in the collection and or own it, but let it kind of happen somewhat naturally and come to you. And uh, the other thing I, I picked up on was, Myron, I don't think you have anything to worry about not owning a Corvette until now because I'm the director of collections and curator at the National Corvette Museum, and I still don't own a Corvette, and I get flack for that almost every day. So I don't think you have to worry. Yeah, well, I know you've got plans, so that's cool. And I, I wouldn't mind that getting something new myself. But, uh, you know, I, a few years ago, I decided that I'm just going to drive old cars exclusively, which is a bit of a challenge, you know, here in the Northeast. But, uh, you know, the most modern car I own is 30 years old, and it's no issue. You know, I, I brag to people that I, I don't have a car with airbags or a couple, and it's, uh, I, I, I can still live. I remember saying that back when I was in college in 94, 95, and I'm never going to buy a car newer than this because I don't want OBD2. I also (laughs) found out I'd like my car to start in the morning, but if I had in excess of 70 cars in the garage, (laughs) oh, it doesn't start, I got something else to run to, you know, target with. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, I do, but uh, I'm fortunate that way, but, you know, (laughs) I'm not blessed with your skills as, you know, your mechanical skills, so... But I am blessed with a really, really close friend uh, who is just a genius uh, uh, mechanic who happens to have his shop in my building. And uh, he, he likes challenges. You know, he's a, he's a forensic mechanic by trade. So when I throw him weird stuff and people that, you know, cars that people don't see, he, uh, he enjoys that aspect of, of it because, uh, you know, he's done 50 years with the small block Chevys and flathead forts. That's a good friend to have if you're collecting cars, even if you know how to work on them. Sometimes that second set of eyeballs or second brain really comes in handy. We get focused on one thing and it's got to be this. All of a sudden, somebody goes, well, what about this? All of a sudden, and, you, you know, you, you get you on the right track. And and notice, you know, you caught it there that he said he just happens to be, you know, in the same building. You know, that that's, that's the coincidence, you know. Oh, wow, mechanic in my building. <laughs> so... I guess another, you know, Myron, we've been hoping Myron would be on the show um, for a while. He was a, a guest that I had uh, put on our guest list quite a while ago. And, um, you know, I, I've had the joy of not only knowing Myron for many years uh, back to, and I, honestly, I don't even know, Myron, if you would, if you remember, uh, you know, me from the first few times we met when I worked at Henry Ford Museum, but... Mm-hmm you know, then had the opportunity to work with you, um, you know, as one of the board members at the Western Reserve Historical Society at the Crawford, and have gotten to know Myron and uh, his collection um, pretty well and, and know what he, um, you know, has in his collection and occasionally know what he's uh, uh, putting up for sale. And kind of the, the impetus of this show is a, a recent uh, purchase and a- acquisition of mine from Myron's collection. I think Derek left us. <laughs> Derek's internet gave out at the very key portion of his statement. Yeah, right. Well, you know, con- consider- considering the car, that's understandable. 
<laughs> Ouch! Hey, I'm back. I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> we we were liking your your impression no of the car. Wow. Yeah, uh, I have no idea what happened. Zoom literally just closed and reopened. Yeah, we're we're having all kinds of Zoom ghosts this evening. So let's you know. Myron had him. You've had him. Let's, you know, hopefully I don't have him since the recording's on. <laughs> but go ahead. Now Now okay, that we've where got... Did I, uh, where did I drop out? Right before you said what, you, what I think the culmination statement of what... Okay. Well, I'll just break in there somewhere and hopefully you can edit it, John, or maybe you'll just leave this whole kerfuffle right in the show. Well, for the word uh, kerfuffle, yeah. you bet. So the, gonna... the, I guess, what was that? I said for the word kerfuffle, I definitely... <laughs> Um, but no, the, the, the impetus of, of the show and, and getting Myron on is a, a recent acquisition that I've made from Myron, uh, and, uh, a car that is just kind of unique in its own right and, uh, an oddball of the micro car world in some ways. Um, but yeah, and this is, this is kind of the, the show where we're going to discuss this and, uh, probably ask for possibly some help from listeners uh, because there are some things not known about the car. But um, of course, Myron, um, I was up about a little over a month ago to pick up a 1958 Lloyd 600 uh, microcar built in Germany. But of course, it uh, knowing Myron and uh, knowing that he likes interesting, unique cars, this isn't just a standard bodied uh, Lloyd 600, but it was actually custom bodied at some point in its life. Um, I believe it was in Canada, if I recall correctly, Myron. Yes. And maybe you can say a little more on, on the car. Yeah. I, I wish I could give you a lot more information, but, uh, this was, uh, this was strictly an impulse purchase at the time. I had uh, a couple, uh, really nice low mileage Lloyd, uh, station wagons, original Lloyd station wagons. And this, this thing showed up on eBay when eBay was still a thing for car for car searching, um, and it was a custom bodied Lloyd made in Canada. They used the body panels, modified body panels of a Canadian uh, Mercury, basically a Monarch, and kind of cut things down and moved them around. Uh, used the I think we figured out they used the hood for the trunk lid and cut down the body. I mean, it's all steel. The workmanship is pretty amazing. But, uh, there's a lot of steel for that little uh, that little motor to be pushing be pushing around. Yeah, it is, and uh, it's you know uh, 600 cc. That's where the the 600 comes from. Uh, a parallel two cylinder engine, front uh, front mounted engine with front wheel drive unit. Uh, kind of a, an interesting setup they had. But as Myron said, I mean the interesting thing about the car is you know whoever did this body work uh, this custom body on it did pretty nice body work in, in all honesty in building this custom body and you know there's a lot of mystery behind um, who did the body and and why this car was done in this way and I know John we're going to be posting some some photos of the car up uh, so people can see it on our our uh, social media and things like that but you know, one of the big things you know Myron I, I think you owned the car you said uh, was it about Six, seven years, was it, that you had the car? No, I think more than that. Probably closer to oh, 10. okay. Closer to 10. Okay. Time flies and having fun. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of, one of my goals now in kind of, you know, taking care of the car and, and being the steward of this vehicle uh, is to try to track down some more of the history on it and, you know, why exactly this 
sports car version, essentially a little two-seater, uh, of a, a micro car was built. Um, and if there was a, a greater purpose behind the car for whoever was building it, you know, were they building it because they were, you know, a, a shop that wanted to do, you know, custom bodies? Was it you know, just somebody that wanted a sports car and they figured this was the best way to do it with a car that wouldn't probably top 60 mile an hour. Um, but it is. And, and you know, the fun thing about it, I've had it down here uh, in my garage for a, a little over a month now. I, I picked it up right around the 4th of July. And uh, actually, was it, it might have been right on the 4th. Of, I don't recall what day I was there. Um, but, you know, it, it, it runs. Um, it doesn't drive yet because we have to rebuild the brakes on it, so it'll actually stop. And uh, but I've I've found some weird things about the car staring into it a little bit. You know, there was a uh, an odd uh, hydraulic clutch system. I don't know if you ever noticed that on it, Myron. And uh, after digging into it a little further, it was uh, a homemade hydraulic clutch system that they had put in the car. And the entire mechanical uh, setup for the clutch is still in the car. It simply was unbolted from the original clutch pedal and the original clutch pedal removed. And that original clutch pedal was in the box of parts in the trunk. There you go. So my my plan is uh, because looking at the hydraulic clutch system they put in, it's it's a little scary. Uh, so I'm I'm going to return it to the mechanical clutch setup and uh, see how that all uh, works with the car. But it's... Derek, Derek it's I, a, I think the thing to do is just install the mechanical unit too. That way you have a, a backup. You never get stranded. There we go. Yeah, both clutch pedals in place. That really confuse people. I like it. Yeah, but, uh, you know, really, and, and Myron, I, I remember the first uh, the first phone call I made to you when I found out the car was for sale. And your question being... Why are you interested in this car? Of course, Myron knows me well enough that he knows I'm, I'm much more passionate about early automobiles, horseless carriage, um, you know, uh, nickel era uh, cars, things like that. And all I all I could say on the phone to Myron was something about the way the car looks just captures my attention, and I could not get it out of my mind. The 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 way they styled the body using the monarch sheet metal the look of the front end it's it's a very unique style and to be honest everyone i showed pictures of the car too whether they were a car person or not thought it was an extremely cool looking car there was no one that said what is that ugly thing it was always wow what is that is an interesting and really cool looking car yeah it, it's a you know it, car, that car Again, not knowing the history, and it probably was built in someone's garage, you know, as therapy or something. But uh, it really does have a little some magic to it because I, I experienced the same thing the whole time I owned it. People, anyone who ever saw it, thought it was a really cool looking car, and always, you know, couldn't believe that it wasn't a production car. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because you can see the cues. Of course, I I, I mean, we're we're kind of speculating in in some aspects because the history of the car isn't well known but you know i think from what i've been able to to find online about some of the you know one of the articles that was written when it was up on ebay and it was posted on craigslist as i recall for a while um that they believe the body was done maybe sometime in the 60s unless you found something different myron when you were 
researching the car? Yeah, no, I, I really, I really didn't find a whole heck of a lot more. Um, but you know, let me give you just a little warning here because I used to research all the cars I got afterwards a lot, you know, trying to find out all the history and stuff. And I remember once I had a Simca 1204 factory rally car and it was on the cover of rally magazine and it was, it was a factory car. It had run international rallies for like two years and it was driven by a guy named Scott Harvey who helped set up direct connection from Opar. He was a, he was a Chrysler employee headed up a lot of the racing stuff and was, a, a, you know, one of the greatest rallies of, uh, Northern, uh, of North America. Well, he was retired at this point when I had the car, but I finally tracked him in retirement in California. And I was so excited. I said, oh, here's the guy. He knew everything. And I, I asked, so I got this car. You know, can you tell me what you know about it? He said, oh, yeah, I know that car really well. He said, I went to France. They sent me to France. I picked it off the line, uh, had it modified in, uh, in Detroit under my supervision and I, I rallied it for two years and uh, I said, Oh man. So yeah. So how was it? And his, his, he didn't hesitate a second. He said, biggest piece of shit I ever drove in my life. So <laughs> be careful what you ask for. Yeah. And I guess, uh, can you guys hear me? All right. Yes. Okay. I, my, it cut out again for a minute, but you know, I, you know, Myron in, in full honesty, I wouldn't be surprised if Somebody said that about the car and, you know, I mean, being in that, you know, curatorial role that I've been in um, and, and researching cars in, in collections and, you know, y- you hear a lot. Looks like Derek did that same bump. Yeah. I'm, got I, Kentucky internet needs to really step into the 21st century. This is killing me. <laughs> I will say this is the first time I've ever had this problem, though, where Zoom actually just closes and then reopens. Yeah, it sounds like it's something to do with uh, Zoom. We'll get through it. We've, we're about 45 minutes in, so. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, Myron, you know, what I was saying before I cut out um, is it wouldn't surprise me if I tracked someone down that actually knew the car and said that. Just, it's a pile of crap. <laughs> but it, but, it's, but a, it's, a, it's a cute pile of crap, and that's what's... Exactly, it's a cute pile of crap. And... Uh, you know, it's interesting because I go out to the garage and I see it. it you know, the, the 1919 Chevy is parked right next to it, the 490 Touring car. And although that car puts a smile on my face, for some reason, the Lloyd, just I just smile every time I see it. And, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting car. And it's it's one of those unique stories that hopefully someday we'll know its whole life and, and why it is what it is. Um but yeah, it's, it's, I, you know, I'm, my hope is that, you know, once I get things figured out on it and sorted and the clutch working and the brakes going that, you know, it's like you said, Myron, you know, one of my goals is to drive old cars pretty much every day in my life and, you know, not drive anything modern and, you know, hopefully we can get it running in, in the way it needs to, that I can drive it back and forth to work and, and drive it around you know, running errands because it's just, just a cool looking car and, and it's, it's fun. Yeah. If anybody hasn't taken the time to check our social media to see some pictures of this, I did check back or I did go over remember back on episode 135. We talked to Jeff Lane and he does have a Lloyd 600. Absolutely nothing like Derek's. You, you, <laughs> <Right>. really, <laughs> you really, you really need to do that. And 
I don't have my Bruce Wiener auction catalog in front of me when, and his micro car. So I don't know if he ever had. Derek's is definitely pretty unique. And, you know, check out the Instagram and Facebook, No Driving Gloves. There are definitely pictures there. And, and maybe even some of, oh, no, no offense, Myron, Derek's proposed uh, wrap jobs to the car. He wants to wrap it in something kind of modern. <laughs> whoa, whoa, not, not wraps, just decals, okay? Okay, so... You know, oh, Myron, I don't know it, if I mentioned this to you, but the, this this sheer stupidity of my mindset is to attempt to possibly one day do some vintage hill climbs with this car oh, cool. just cool. for the fun of it. <laughs> yeah, l- listen, you know, my, my philosophy about cars is, you know, listen, I, I, I love cars, but, you know, once... Uh, I have no qualms with what anybody does with a car they own. <laughs> you know, man-made cars, man can fix cars, man can change cars. So, you know, have at it, and I'll be happy for you, whatever you do to it. Great, great, great theory. I think that's how No Driving Gloves looks at everything, with maybe the exceptional will. I've always said you can do whatever you want with whatever car, because we all had the equal opportunity to buy it. Maybe not the funds, but we had the opportunity. And as long as it's not the last one on the planet, um, I'm I'm gonna forgive you if it's the last one on the planet. I might cha- change my words, but yeah, right. But uh, so wait, where does this where where does this Lloyd fall? Because technically, it's the only one on the planet with this body. So where are you gonna where are you gonna fall on that? Well, I I kind of know what you're gonna do to it and once you get done with your Liberty Walk ground effects kit with it and a big <laughs> wing on the back. <laughs> that way, we can picnic table on the you know on the the uh, deck lid. We'll, we'll be fine. You know, but that that attitude. John kind of ties back to, you know, you'd mentioned something about uh, young enthusiasts and access to, to the hobby and stuff. And I'm going to I'm going to be the one dissenting old white guy in the hobby to say, you know, that there's just as much enthusiasm out there for cars as there was when we were kids. You know, I, I go to enough events to hear, oh, nobody cares. The young kids don't care about cars and stuff. You know, I've started years ago when I first got into the Japanese end of the of the collecting hobby. I started attending these events and uh, you know what? They're predominantly 20 and 30 year old kids doing stuff with Hondas, Toyotas and, and Nissans that people in my generation were doing Fords and Chevys when we were young and people the generation before me were doing with, you know, Model A's and Model T's. So, um, you know, the fact that the younger enthusiasts may not love what, you were raised with or what you're passionate about doesn't mean the enthusiasm isn't there. You know, they may not come to Concord events, but, you know, they have these cruises like at eight o'clock, 10 o'clock, midnight, and they're out in force and they're passionate. They work on their cars and it's, it's really refreshing to, to be involved with. And, that, and that's what, you we, know, Myron, I'm, I, I want to jump in real quick because Myron, I think, you know, you're a great example of the older generation that wants to see the passion in the younger generation and, and takes the time to, you know, be around the younger generation and encourage it. And I think there's two great examples of that in your life. And that, and, and I know both of your daughters um, who are very, very passionate young women and, and love the car scene. Yeah. Yeah. You know, funny thing last year, about a year ago, this, this time I bought a car in Monterey called uh, an Autech uh, Zagato Stelvio. Uh, right-hand drive, very low production, uh, basically a Nissan Leopard with a hand-built uh, Zagato body. They only built 88 of those cars. I bought it in Monterey, uh, had it shipped home. It We left on vacation um, out of the country before it came home. So it came home, 
And uh, before we got back, the girls had kind of, with our permission, hijacked the car, drove it to Detroit, won best to show at Radwood, and, and, and drove it back. So. Yeah, and that's what we found with the sh- our show and various conversations is that kids are into cars. I mean, and I, I always, I guess, arrogantly use myself as an example because I did the mini truck scene. Then I did, the, you know, the hot rod Hondas and was one of the early dual overhead cam engine swap guys and all that to my CRX. Like I say, eventually matured and became, a you know, you know, a Lotus guy. And now I kind of respect all aspects of the car, car hobby. And that's where, you know, Derek is, he's a pre-war guy, but he's at the Corvette music and he embraces everything. Will embraces everything. He prefers it to be a, you know, a hot rod, but he does understand and he does have respect for everything. Sean loves his race cars and his sports cars. And, you know, that's, that's how our hosts are is we're, we, we love everything. And that's, we don't want to sit here and preach Mopar and, you know, Ford or General Motors or Corvette or it's, you need to embrace everything. And, and it's nice to see you and someone of your age who's respecting the, the, the kids stepping into the hobby and not dismissing them. I've said for years, if you want kids to part, participate and play with you in the hobby, you got to listen to a little bit of their music and, you know, we got to turn off the Beach Boys and maybe play some, you know, Nine Inch Nail or Dawes or something a little bit more modern for the kids. And then go back and play an Elvis, you know, start mixing it up and realize exactly what you said. The generation before you did it with, you know, T's and A's, you know, you did it with, you know, Tri-Fi Chevys and muscle cars. You know, my generation's done it with Hondas and everything. And now, who knows where we're at? It's, there's just, there's so much and it's embracing. And that's why I love the the car hobby is if you're, if you find a group you don't like, or doesn't get along with you, you can always shift just a little bit. You're going to find a a place to fit in and we all should be welcoming. We shouldn't. I just want to know when uh, appreciate Lotus spent mature. As you said, you matured, became a Lotus. Well, to my financial advisor, it really did because after you put twenty thousand into a CRX and you're able to sell it for four, and you could get the same performance by putting twenty thousand into a Lotus or thirty thousand into a Lotus and sell it for twenty thousand or thirty thousand, that's kind of maturing at least with your financial portfolio. That when once you understand depreciation, I think you've uh, achieved a level of maturity in the car hobby. <laughs> you know, one one of my greatest. Dis- appointments was I lusted after a Lotus Europa forever and uh, finally came town. I found a time I found a beautiful twin cam, just beautifully done, super low mileage, well taken care of. And the guy actually brought it to my house and I, I didn't fit. <laughs> you know, my, my legs were too long. My feet were too big. I, I tried for half an hour to get myself to fit in, into that car and it just didn't work. I, I actually had a uh, 73 Lotus Europa twin cam and just love that car. You know, and I had a Caterham beside it and, and all, one of the newer Alon M100s, the Isuzu Lotus. And each one had its thing. But I think the Europa actually performed and handled better than the 7. The 7 got all the attention because it's so crazy going somewhere probably in your Excalibur. And the Alon M100 is just the practical one. Each one did it. Uh, I regretted having to, to sell the Europa when, when it did. But it went on to a better owner, and he's. I sold it to him 12 years ago, 
and it's just coming out of his 12-year restoration. It, it's, it'd be my dream Europa if there would be a way I could afford it now. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's, you know, again, one of those things that we talk about on the show a lot, John, and, and you know, Myron, kind of a, a great example of it. And some of the, the cars he owns that he's talked about is, you know, to those getting in, into the hobby and, and that younger generation is, you know, we're all kind of caretakers that are taking, you know, well, that's kind of redundant, but caretakers that are, are you know, having these cars in our collection and then eventually passing them on to the next caretaker. And, you know, like Myron said, you know, he, he's watched cars, the Polynesian in, you know, most recently and most specifically, you know, he watched that car as it was owned by people in the Ohio area. He knew about the car all his life. And eventually, you know, it's now kind of his place to be the caretaker of it and, and treat it right. And then eventually it'll move on to another caretaker someday. And I think that's the thing that, you know, one of the things you have to remember when you're getting into the hobby is, you know, that, that you kind of, your passion is what kind of guides you in this. And, you know, you're, as you buy and sell the cars that you are passionate about and love that, you know, you're a caretaker of them. And, you know, that's, that's what this is all about. The, the passion of the car that you're taking care of and sharing its story until it passes along through history. I had a question kind of a little off topic, Myron, for you, um, do, researching the guest and, you know, learning a little bit about you before the show. Um, you had appeared on Mark Green's podcast cars yeah which Derek was on just a few weeks ago and i don't know how many times you've been on a show whether or not it's once or whatever but this is probably an appearance back in the early days of cars yeah 2015 2007 yeah it was a long time ago and he asked you a question and it really caught me off guard because i keep trying to trying to do this but it's so big and it's enamoring when it sits on my desk but he asked you your favorite book and you uh, maybe it's changed, but you, you brought up the reckoning. And I think the, the idea behind the reckonings always appealed to me. But when I sit down with 800 pages of book, at least my copy, um, I just start to read it. Can That's a little bit of history there, but it's kind of amazing history. And, you know, I've never really known anybody else who knew the book, The Reckoning. I've always had to explain it. Can you go a little bit into that? Because it does overlap on, you know, American JDM and U.S. cars and all of that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a huge reader. I, that was again, that was just kind of. I think it was right around the time I was really kind of discovering the whole JDM culture and the importance of you know of what happened in that period. That that really we were so much oblivious. And that was I think it was more of an enlightening thing for me than anything. Yeah. Well, it, it basically is a book discuss, discussing how the, I can't remember which, which, but it takes the Ford business culture and the Nissan business culture and compares them and how alike they were, even though they were worlds apart, because we're talking pre-World War II with both management structure, how these companies, it's it just, you know, it's just one of those things that caught me off guard that, go, whoa, you know, this, this appeared here. Yeah. Well, again, again, it was, again, I was just discovering the Japanese culture and I was reading a lot of stuff about that. It was another book I read about the same times, this book that wasn't widely known, but it was about how the original Lexus LS I think it was the the pursuit of perfection or something. When the original Lexus LS 
was uh, was developed and how it was developed. And it was written by a gentleman who was uh, with the Wall Street Journal at the time. And he was not a car guy, right? So it's just kind of behind the thing. But again, it just gave you really great insight as to the culture of of the industry at that time. Which you know, you know, you mentioned the reckoning. It, it, it's been interesting, kind of following Nissan's plight. You know, since then, I I've ended up having some really good friends at Nissan, especially in the design area since, and watching the whole. Carlos Ghosn thing uh, develop and getting a little bit of the inside view and stuff. It's uh, it, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And you bring up the uh, development, the pursuit of perfection, and I'm I'm one of the I'm one of these huge fans of the early Lexus LS. My dad had a '93, great car. I've got a guy that hangs out with me all the time. He's had his LSs, and both of us would love to go back and get, you know, some, you know, one of the mid '90s LS 400s again, or a fourth. Great cars, but um, Malcolm Gladwell, say Malcolm Gladwell, a podcaster, he did a special um, him in Pushkin Industries. I'm sure this was paid for by Lexus, but the development, I think, of the new Lexus. RX 500. I haven't finished the podcast. I'm not sure which car, but it's one of the convertible Lexus and all the different Japanese design theories and culture theories stuff. So far, it's been a great podcast. It's only six episodes long, you know, not to put you back into the JDM stuff, Myron, but if any of our listeners, you know, that's how I find podcasts when podcasts recommend podcasts. So, uh, (laughs) you know, if if you can tolerate Malcolm, it's it's a good podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm still, again, just, we're we're just wrapping up the book. So I'm I'm deep into the the, the minutiae. I I just, I woke up at six o'clock this morning Morning and wrote uh, for four hours. I wrote captions about obscure Mitsubishi car photographs. So it's, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty deep into that stuff. But you know, you look at the design. You know, one of the interesting things that you don't realize is that the use of the Japanese that, that of uh, great Italian designers. You know, especially in the early '60s up into the early '70s. Uh, you know, the people go through my garage and they say, "Wow, that car is really beautiful. What is it?" And I, I'll say, "It's a Mazda. Or it's an Isuzu." You mentioned I, I just. I just sold my Isuzu 117 Coupe, which is really, you know, one of the most beautiful Giugiaro designs of all time. It's really like a two-thirds scale Fiat Dino Coupe. And it was his first clean sheet design at Ghia right after he'd left Bertone. So it, it, it's really great stuff out there. there and then conversely, uh, I have a first generation Nissan Silvia CSP311, which was a hand-built car that uh, Albrecht von Gertz has been taken credit for <laughs> since day one, but it was really in digging and, and reading the, and, and researching for the book, we find that it was done totally internally and the two designers are still alive and, and on a consulting basis with Nissan. So, you know, the, the history is uh, a fun part of the fun part of the hobby. I think, I think the research is the most enjoyable portion of the car hobby. That's what I always enjoyed in the restoration is researching and figuring out and theorizing and proving yourself right or wrong. It's just, that was what I enjoyed the most restoration. That's what I enjoyed most with the, uh, you know, doing when I do uh, collector car consulting, just figuring out the research and trying to prove theories right or prove, or just learning. Yeah. And I I think that's, you know, being, Again, in the, in the collections world, in the museums, in the curatorial, it's one of the things that I find most interesting in the car hobby as well is the research. And you know, even if you think you have a car that, oh, 
you know every you know everybody knows everything about it. I mean, in in the Corvette world, you know, it, the Corvette is a modern vehicle by by most standards, and you know, I mean, started in 1953, but there's still a lot of mysteries to be researched within the designs. Uh, the engineering of it that the stories aren't always told. So then you get into stories like the cars that Myron has in his collection and these, these odd cars that, you know, the Japanese cars and things like that, the research can, can suck you in. And, and the cool thing is, is you really get to learn almost in some ways, you know, more about the car than if you were just out in the garage wrenching on. I know that seems like a, a pretty easy statement to understand, but you know, wrenching on it is one thing, but but learning that history and and to me, understanding the mindset of the people that engineered it and designed it, it tells you so much more about you know the car itself, and even when you go to work on it, understanding how to work on the car and you know really why it is built the way it is. But then you know, and then the other benefit of, of having unique you know, one off the low production cars, though, is, you know, sometimes just can't find that information. And uh, we were showing one of one of our cars at Pebble Beach, oh, oh, maybe 10 years ago, not quite 10 years ago. And again, my friend who works on the cars for me, uh, was there with me. And, you know, I was in the back of the car talking, he was in the front, whatever. And someone had asked him this question that we just didn't know. I mean, something crazy. And a light went off in his brain. He said, you know what? I can tell them anything I want because nobody's here to prove me wrong. So, <laughs> you know, and that, uh, go ahead. Derek. Well, I was going to say that brought up one, one other thing that was on my mind, uh, you know, when knowing that we were going to be talking with Myron tonight, which is of course, uh, Myron, as, as he said, you know, in his, in his day life, he ran country clubs and um, at one of the country clubs he was heavily involved with, um, ran a, a great concours, um, the Glenmore Gathering uh, in Akron, Ohio there. And that was always a great one to attend and, and go to. And, uh, you know, but Myron, your take on, um, you know, basically the, the situation this year, uh, you know, the lack of the shows that are going on in, in the car community and car culture. Of course, we just passed Car Week at Pebble Beach. Pebble Beach would have been this past Sunday. And of course, Myron, you're a regular out at Pebble Beach, frequently, let's say, out, out at the Concours. And whether you're showing a car or even just there to, to hang out and, and see cars. Um, but kind of your take on, on everything that's going on in the car community this year and um, how we're going to bounce back next year and, and really what I think are going to be phenomenal shows next year because we've missed a year of, of getting together and, and seeing all those people we usually get to see at these shows. You know, I, I, th- I think it's more of a, the world issue as opposed to a car issue, right? The, <laughs> yeah. the, the world, the world has changed and uh, it's, it's changed. I can't say it's changed for better, but it's changed for good. And I don't think anybody can really project, you know, what's going to happen. I think there, there is a pent up demand for, for car events. Um, you know, I see the local cars and coffee events, like in Cleveland, again, some of these younger car events, these late night things and young, the, the, the turnouts are huge. Um, almost too big, unfortunately, because it's just, there's just no way to safely do these things, but they're pop-up events and they're spontaneous. And uh, a lot of people are looking for something to do. Um, I, I don't know if the events, I, I really can't say, I think, I think 
just like you know, all these projections of people say that 30% or 40% of the, of the private restaurants are going to be closing because people are more have learned and to enjoy cooking home and staying home. Um, I think it's going to change events as a whole. And I think, again, the whole COVID thing is really an economic issue. And it really depends on what, not turn into, into a political decision, but uh, see, see the discussion, but see what, where our country ends up from here. Um, that's that's going to not only determine the car shows of the future, but, you know, how we live our lives. So I, I, I don't know. I think, I think some things will disappear forever as a result. And uh, we may see some new things that, w- that we hadn't seen before. But uh, I think it, it hasn't, uh, it, it definitely the enthusiasm hasn't been hurt by it. We have good friends at Summit Racing. They're our neighbors. We're near our shop. And I think they and pretty much any other auto parts supplier have, have had like a banner three or four months mail ordering parts for people that have been home that have had, had time to work on their cars. So there'll be some really cool stuff coming out, whether it'll come out in traditional venues or a new type of venue. I think we'll just have to wait and see. What were you going to say, John? I know you had something to say before I interrupt. Nope. I was waiting for you. I was just going to, it's going to definitely be a different year when it comes to car shows and that. I'm, I've always been a slight uh, optimistic pessimist and I'm sure we're going to get back to some of them. Unfortunately, we're going to lose some of them. I think there's going to be rethinking and we're probably going to come out with some better events. Uh, My doomsday projection, though, is technically it might be Pebble next year where uh, we start rejoining and this stuff begins because until we get and everybody keeps clamoring for a vaccine, I keep saying we need a treatment. We need we need to figure out how to make everybody who's sick better. And then we can figure out how to prevent everybody uh, because people with vaccines will still get sick in that. We need to come up, once we have a medical remedy to this, we're going, you know, events will begin to slowly take place. But it's not like if they announced on Monday that we have a vaccine or a treatment, all of a sudden events are going to start the you know, following Friday. It's going to take a while for the world to be treated and everybody to become accustomed to people again, because frankly, I, I'm a little bit of a hermit and kind of liking. Uh, it's definitely going to be a different world. Everything's going to be interesting. Um, as the meme says on Facebook, though, when we go to SEMA next year, there's not going to be any of those uh, chicken bleep welds on cars and that everything yeah. should be absolutely perfect because everybody's had two years or at least more than a year to get everything done. 13 months. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And some people are going to have had 25 months, we'll say. But, <laughs> so they're like, like I think Will said, no Bluetooth drive shafts and everything should run and drive in there and uh, calipers shouldn't be put on backwards and all that fun stuff. But I've got one more question for you, Myron. We're well over an hour here. and uh, But I think the conversation's been worth it in time investment. Uh, you have 75-ish cars. Um, how many cars have you? do you think you've owned in, in your few years? You People know, are, I, 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 I know I, I quit tallying around 400. And, and see, was, see, that makes me feel good because I'm at about like 57 and I'm, I'm 48. So it's two cars a year or of, of my driving life or so. And people think that's a, a number. I like hearing 400 
that that works for me. I don't even know if I've broken 15 yet. I got a long ways to go. I'll say the other day when they were talking about it on my personal Facebook page and there was a big car guy or a car guy that I knew in high school and I found out he's only had like six, you know, he had a couple really hot cars in high school and then after high school, you know, he might be at seven now because he just recently bought a new pickup. Uh, but it's, you know, it's interesting. If with a little bit better parenting, since my dad was this, I wouldn't have had that. But too late, he can't do anything. Who did we drop? Did Derek go away again? Uh, no, it looks like we lost Myron that time. Ooh. Hope he didn't just get bored with us. Yeah, we'll see. We'll wait. Give him a minute here, Derek, to come back. I'll edit all this. If he doesn't come back, we'll lose the show. All right. One final question for him. Now we're not going to be able to ask it. And seeing he's an avid listener to the show, he'll know it's coming. Uh-huh. Yeah, one of the entries we got for the magazine, they commented on the quality of the show. That it was good or bad? Good. Oh, good. Hey, Myron, you back? I'm I'm back with voice. Uh, don't know what that computer sent uh, I don't know what happened on my phone. It just knocked me out. It's, yeah, I think it's, I think just, it's Zoom. Yeah, it's, it's a couple of technical issues tonight. I can't. And I don't know how to figure out, so we'll just live with it. Uh, we're going to kind of just pretend we can, where you dropped was a decent place. We'll go ahead, and Derek's going to do one more question or something, and then we're just going to go ahead and exit. Yeah, so, well, Myron, it's been great having you on the show, uh, But and I, I know you're, you're a, a listener of the podcast, No Driving Gloves, so hopefully you know the last question that's coming your way, and I, I mean, that is... When are you going to add a Zamboni to the collection? You know what? Um, in my old age, I've come to hate ice and cold and all <laughs> the other stuff. So, yeah, yeah, you know, someone sent me a Porsche-powered uh, ski slope grooming uh, machine about a year or so ago, which, you know, about 10 years ago, I'd have probably been all over. I, have, I already have a Porsche 356-powered ski lift uh, mechanism. Uh, but, uh, anything that has to do with ice or cold at this point is, is I'm automatically out. Yet, yet you still live in Ohio. <laughs> and, well, you know, I, I, that, that's much more my wife's decision than mine. Plus <laughs> I have, plus I have this noose of about, a, of about 70 cars around my neck. Well, I was going to say, I just want to have the friends that are going to just send me Porsche ice creamings or, you know, I don't even <laughs> have people that'll send me a Porsche mass, mass, matchbox cars. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> We do thank you for being a listener, Myron, and uh, we do thank you for joining us on the podcast and telling us a little bit about your cars. To, I'll let Derek do the complete windup, but I just want to say I, I've learned a lot. Now I'm probably going to have to go back to Jalopnik and read all your posts over the last seven or eight. Well, you're going to have to go past that. I I'm, I was one of the early guys on Jalopnik way, way back when. So uh, back, you have to go back, back in. Back when I history. called it Jalapnik. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, it's so it's, well, my, it's, it's been my pleasure to be on. I, I appreciate you guys having me. I, I love your podcast. It's, uh, well, I don't listen to a lot of automotive podcasts, but yours I listen to pretty much as it drops every week, and I appreciate it. And, you know, thanks for including me with your group of guests who generally are much more esteemed than I am. And uh, I hope I didn't bore your listeners too much with esoteric details of cars nobody cares about i doubt you did byron everything i mean it's it's fascinating to hear the stories and um i think the listeners we know that we have are are gonna probably love this episode and and hearing about these quirky cars that 
you have in the collection and they'll probably go in and, and start doing research on the cars. And, you know, like John said, going back to Jalopnik and, and looking up your, you know, stories and, and all that about your collection. So I do want to give you a chance, Myron. I don't know if you want to, you know, and we can edit this out if it would be, you know, but I don't know if you wanted to, you know, give out any, I know you, you post a lot of things on um, some social media. If you wanted to, you know, give any of your social media, um, names out if people want to follow you to to learn more about the cars yeah i think on on instagram i'm uh junkman356 and twitter just myron vernus um spelled the way you normally spell myron vernus <laughs> and uh i think i'm on i think on facebook uh, mobilia garage is kind of what i have uh for the cars in the collection so that's it's that's it i i don't do facebook a whole heck of a lot but I try to post a couple times a day wacky cars that, that I see uh, in traffic or in the garage uh, on Instagram. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Myron. And uh, of course, for everybody listening, check out uh, No Driving Gloves on all our uh, social media. Um, John, I'm going to let you wrap it up because I never remember every social media account we have and you're much better at now that's why we have the nice pre-canned in our outro now just telling you to go to the website no drivinggloves.com oh i gotta listen to the new outro man and everything's there (laughs) and we've also uh, we've now added because basically i decided patreon was i don't want to ask you guys to commit five or ten dollars a month to us but when you hear an episode and you really like it Go to the website, click buy, buy us a coffee, and it'll take you to buymeacoffee.com. And you can chip in a couple of bucks every now and then. And we'll randomly give gifts and that for anybody who buys us coffee, whether it's stickers, magnets, T-shirts, uh, whatever latest promo stuff we might have, uh, things laying around that we have that are car-oriented, car, car just random stuff. Not everybody will win, but you can't win if you don't play. <laughs> so, Check us out, buy us, uh, buymeacoffee.com, no driving glove. With that, I'm out of here. Thank you, Myron, for your time this evening. Um, we look forward to maybe some with you again. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Myron. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you for listening, and remember to look us up at nodrivinggloves.com. There you can find back episodes, links to products we recommend, and links to all of our social media. Be sure to tell a friend about us. No Driving Gloves is edited and produced by J. Lewis Productions.